Welcome to the Cali Ag Podcast. I'm Tyler Colombaro, and I'm the host of this podcast. This podcast will ultimately be an exploration into all aspects of California agriculture, from the crops, to the land, to the water. Listener, if you were not aware, the state of California provides an unquantifiable amount of produce to the world. We will feature guests on each episode that work and lead the agricultural trajectory and symbiosis within the state of California. So listener, join us, tell your friends, and tell a farmer about the Cali Ag Podcast. Folks, we are here with Anthony Garcia, who works as an evaluation specialist for Zager's Genetics up there in Modesto, California. He's doing big things with stone fruit. Folks, he's breeding plants on a regular basis. He's evaluating those plants on a regular basis. He knows what's up. He's our Cali Ag podcast correspondent. And he is here to talk about what's going on with the fruit recently in California. But first, we want to talk about my specific fruit in my backyard. He helped me get my hands on these Dave Wilson trees that are very nice. And they are two, uh, are they both peach trees, Anthony? Yes, sir. Yeah, one of them is a Sierra Rich, right? Sierra Rich. Yes, sir. And I already picked some of those personally in my backyard. And it's going good, and they're delicious. And they uh, they they stayed hard if I put them in the fridge, but without yep. cool, cooling of any kind, no, they would go pretty fast. Um, they would soften yeah. up really quick. But I picked them a little late, too. I still have some on the trees. I think that's a little late. I don't know, but it just seems like it because they're like some fell off, you know, but they're delicious. Um, yeah. The Sierra Rich type of variety, mm-hmm. though, it's a very popular variety. Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of the more popular yellow peach varieties. It falls right mid-season, and it's really one of the first varieties where the growers really get a pretty good size amount of production off of it, so they can go officially start their mid-season large, larger-scale operations. You know, we're out of the early season. We're away from a lot of the more finicky varieties. This is the first more solid variety that's a lot easier to farm. Interesting. I'll say that it is pretty easy. I didn't really do much. I did some pruning. I don't think I did any thinning. I just went at it and and let the rains take hold and and been flood irrigating these things ever since on a weekly on like a weekly basis. And it's been going pretty good. And this other variety is like it's not quite there yet. It's not quite ready to harvest, but it's a white peach of some kind. It seems they're kind of hard still. They're kind of small, but I know last year they were huge, and I want to say they came yeah. off in like August. It, it, I, I, it, what what are those peaches called? Yeah, I, th- I think if I remember right, that's a Mia Snow is the variety, and that's <clears throat> that's a little later. It's usually August fifteenth, August twentieth. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure, because that seems about right. Like uh, about a month out at least from right now, because we're recording, folks. It is July. What day? It's July eleventh. It's seven eleven. Yes, Go sir. get your free slushy. But by the time you, you hear this, it'll be too late. Um, <laughs> but, but dude, these peaches are beautiful. I'm very grateful yeah. for getting my hands on these. Thank you so much. Shout out to Dave Wilson Nursery, just in general, for doing what they do too, you know. Um, but I want to talk about not my backyard. See, this is a microclimate we could maybe use as a reference point to start from. But I want to go yeah. a little more bigger scale here because you deal with that and you definitely deal with many different breeds as you're evaluating them. Um, we could talk about whatever breeds you want, whatever kind of stone fruit you want to talk about, but I kind of wanted to maybe discuss like, um, 
how the fruit has been looking, especially what's already came off. What's the general consensus after our long wet year? Yeah, it's uh, the more growers I talk to, and the more uh, the more things I see on the field, the more I'm realizing that mid season fruit this year, stuff that has around five to six hundred chill hours, has just been getting absolutely decimated. <clears throat> the crops are not there. Um, and, I, and I'm not saying that's across the board for every single person in the industry. Where I am right now, <clears throat> that's that's what it is, an almost near wipeout mid-season. But it's looking okay so far. Early stuff looked okay. Later stuff is still to be seen, but mid-season stuff is struggling right now. But like I said earlier, the volume that we usually get mid-season is kind of making up for the lost crops, at least commercially. So that is one really good thing so far. But crops overall have been interesting, to say the least. I would say overall we're probably down 30% where I am. And when you say where you are, like you mean just uh, at Zager's like, facility yes. or like in Modesto in general or, yeah, at Zager's it, facility? It, yes, yeah, yeah, at our facility in general. I would. It, it's hard to say because it's, it's hard to get a good a good percentage on it because every single – we don't have large acreage of anything. We have individual trees of each individual variety. Right. That's it. We have one and one and one. I think our facility has probably 15,000, 15 to 20,000 different varieties on it right now. So it, you can't pin down any one thing over another. You can just kind of look at a commodity in a time slot as a whole, you know, to yeah. kind of get an idea. You deal with apricots a lot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like yeah. I, I didn't see a lot of apricots this year, but maybe that's just my fault for not looking. But I normally no. feel like I see them more. I don't know if I'm tripping, but I didn't. I only, gosh, I only came across them like once or twice this year. I feel yeah. like. Yeah. No, that that's honestly right. The apricot crop this year was almost completely wiped out. <clears throat> Commercial guys I'm talking to right now, they they're done. They don't have anything anymore. Apricots are completely done. They've picked them end of season for them. They're done, and they should have two weeks left. But um, I think just frost damage came in and damaged the tips of the flowers after they were done pollinating the end of the pistols. They just got burnt up. And I think that, that that being burnt up with the freeze and then the constant rain on top of the apricots caused a lot of blossom end rot. And fruit was hitting the dirt everywhere. Just drop. Yeah. So, so whatever survived the freeze that stuck on the tree had to survive what little bit of heat we had plus the blossom end rot. And it was a rough year for apricot growers across the board. That's that's one variety or that's one commodity that I can say is almost a complete wash this year. Dang. Let's talk about yeah. forbidden fruit. What about the almonds, bro? The almonds? Yeah, you what know, are you, what are we seeing? Crops are light. Crops are light, but they're not they're they're not light enough for people to rip rip trees out, but they're light enough for people to really consider the way that they farm yeah um yeah whole split started a little bit earlier this year like we already have some stuff in whole split here but those are experimental varieties that come off before even non-pareil okay so um but <clears throat> our crop is fairly light um i've been hearing from some of the growers adjacent to the fields where i evaluate that their their crops look okay they're thinking they're down 10 percent and sizes down probably 10, 15% to last year is what they're kind of estimating. Okay. 
So it's just kind of light across the board so for everything. So still billions of dollar revenue coming in, but just maybe like uh, like a couple thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars less or some shit like and, that. And, and instead of somebody making three million dollars, they may make like two point eight. You know what I mean? Okay. It's one of those. Things. It's still a lot of money, it's, folks. But yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to pick and say that this uh, this money doesn't matter. I'm just saying it's like we're talking huge scale um, on the and we're oh, yeah. we're talking all of California just alone uh, almonds huge mm-hmm. enterprise folks huge enterprise insane enterprise some would say but it works and we grow them here and I noticed in my little microclimate of a backyard that my almond tree just doesn't it's just not the business bro like it needs more plants it's a self-pollinating uh it's an all-in-one uh, mm-hmm. almond. I, I don't know if that's the same as independence though. They're not the same, correct? No, they're not the same. No. Okay. Cause independence is, is a type that you still pollinate with, right? No, it, it's self pollinating, oh. but it's, um, they're, 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 they're different. The parentages are different. Ours here is an almond peach hybrid. Got you. That's yeah. What oh, for was, sure. Yeah. It's got a peach rootstock on this thing though, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and it grows amazingly. Like honestly, I maybe it's my fault for pruning it all stupid. I pruned it like a peach tree. I, I kind of like crotched it out and like yeah. tried to because I wanted I want all my trees to not get too huge in my backyard. It's too crazy to deal with once they get big. Like my walnut tree, gosh, I don't want to stunt it all crazy, make it all deformed and Frankenstein, but I gotta do stuff yeah. about it, you know. So I try to do what I can. And this almond tree, that's what I ended up doing. I ended up topping it, you know, and kind of letting it like hedge in, you know, a little bit and then, and yeah. then cutting windows, you know what I mean? Stuff like that for their more to oh, be yeah. better light penetration into the canopy and blah, blah, blah. But every year, man, uh, it, and it's, I want to say it's probably like a, eight, like a seven, eight year old tree maybe now every yeah. year, maybe not that old, but it's at least five years old every year, the almonds drop and maybe it's cause it's not old enough. I don't really know. I feel like I should know this kind of shit. Like, do you think it's yeah. just not old enough? What, well, I mean, what time of year do they drop is probably a better question. Man, it was before it was before the heat came. It was in like May, like the beginning of May. I, I started losing yeah. all my nuts. Yeah, no, I mean that uh, almonds do. They they naturally just drop and shuck whatever they can't uh-huh. can't support. That's usually around end of May, beginning of June. But this year it should have been even later huh. for it to be dropping in May. The only thing I could think is that um, it just got rained on too much. We had a lot of drop this year too early. Right. It just got rained in too much, and I think that abscission layer in there started to form too early with all the moisture, and it started to stress and just decided, well, I'm going to keep the strong nuts that I can and drop the rest. Yeah. That's so interesting yeah. that they decide these yeah. things based upon the climate, it seems. I mean, this is mm-hmm. not necessarily like speaking from definite fact, but it seems pretty obvious, you know. Um, but what we're talking about here reminds me that we got to talk about the rains and how they affected because Mm -hmm. we talked about it last time and we talked about it the first time you came on the pod, but now we got to discuss in the aftermath because now we can actually see some of the results from that excess, call it excess rain that we had in California in the first three Mm -hmm. months of the year. And it, it definitely affected the situation to what degree is arguable, but I just want to discuss like what you're seeing, like there's maybe most likely more fungal bacterial type things yeah. going on with more rain that we now see now that we can actually take data from the scenario. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, just at a base level, our fungicide sprays here, like brown rot, we've done more brown rot sprays already this year than we did all of last year combined. Wow. Just because of how, how late and how warm and wet our rains were. <clears throat> we were so terrified of losing all of our fruit. Yeah. Um, 
And with that, with all that rain, also brings in a bunch of bacterial canker. So walking through the field, anything that was pruned at the wrong time or anything that, you know, the wind came in, because we had a lot of strong winds here in Modesto, anything that broke or anything like that that got rained on, we have red and yellow gumming all over the place. Damn. <clears throat> it's it's pretty bad. You know, it's it hasn't quite wiped out whole trees, but limbs are getting taken down because of it. And that's, <clears throat> I've, I've been hearing that from growers up and down the state that the wet weather is really, really messing with them bacterial canker-wise. <clears throat> and people who are in a little heavier soil have been dealing with Phytophthora, Phytophthora, I think is what it is, how yeah. it's pronounced. Yeah. Um, dealing with a lot of that. And then I've heard of some uh, almond growers in my area here dealing with Alternaria. Oh. Yeah, and that's, <clears throat> that's not easy to get rid of. So it's it's uh, the rain brought on a lot of stuff, and along with that, it leached a lot of the nutrients out of the soil. Ah, yes, that was my next question, my friend. Mm -hmm. Like, what's up with yes, the? Because I mean, I don't know. Maybe most listeners, I, I would imagine, kind of understand how fertilizer works, conventional applications, stuff like that may work. But yeah. um, the obvious fact is, is when you would. Uh, leach something of its nutrient. I mean, I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is excess water generally will push, I mean, whatever it is, whether it's salts, it's debris, it's organic matter, it's uh, acids, whatever, further down into the soil profile. That's just the, the, the way that water infiltrates and percolates and brings stuff with it on the way down. Um, so like you said, we've seen a lot of that this year, I'm sure, across the board yeah. because of such heavy rainfall all across the state, right? Oh yeah, no, it's it's pretty rough. Like you can you can go through the field and it's almost like if you were standing up on top of a ten foot ladder, <clears throat> you can see where the heavier spots in the field are because the trees are more yellow in that spot because the trees sat in water for that much longer. Damn. So like earlier this year, whenever I was counting, because uh, we do self sterility checks on our apricots, and you have to we pull off a mesh bag because we. We keep the bees out, but we put a mesh bag so there's air flow through there so the flowers can pollinate themselves if they are. Right. But standing up there, and this is just whenever the trees very first started to leaf out, you know, and the fruit was, you know, fruit was there and everything, just like right before you, and, and standing on top of a 10-foot ladder, I could look around and go, there's a heavy spot, there's a heavy spot, there's a heavy spot, and just see in the field where there's going to be problems, and it's persisted throughout the year in the same areas. Yeah, it's like water's amazing, but it can be a problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, right? Like, I don't know, like, in that essence of it. Um, it. But that being said, like, then there's more applications that probably are been happening, or I don't know. Maybe that's not our mm -hmm. neither of our expertise per se. But like, uh, I'm sure there's more. These fertilizer companies maybe made a little more money this year. I don't know. Just the <laughs> maybe not though. Maybe they weren't irrigating and fertigating as heavy earlier on in the season because they didn't need to. Um, and then yeah. once time comes, maybe they could accurately adjust because we're getting more like zoned in on this precision agriculture type of type of thing going on with agriculture, you know, where they'll like yeah. they'll fertigate me like they'll fertilize through irrigation on the farm and they'll do it and adjust it to what the plants needs are as best they can, because not every plant's in the same stage and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But um yeah, I wonder though, like in general, like especially conventional farming, just OG farming, like they probably put extra fertilizer on a few times or something because of them losing some of their yeah. uh, nutrition in the soil. But I don't know. At the same time, uh, this seems like a good fit for biochar for when these times yeah. come. I recently had Dr. Milton McGiffin shout out to the man, the myth, the legend, 
and he was talking about biochar and how he really thought it would have taken off more in the agricultural scene and 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 not his opinion my opinion was that maybe it's because some of these companies don't want that to be the case because then it would like they wouldn't need to buy as much product from them if the grower were to apply biochar theoretically i mean just the way that it works out the way that it holds on to a lot of these forms of nutrition and microbes and uh, soil organisms that help create the ecosystem in the root zone and all this. But with rains, even, it wouldn't necessarily leach the biochar. That still would stay there as a source yes. of carbon and almost like a source of filtration, even if you wanted to go that far, if you were like a super hyper environmentalist person, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it, w- it it seems like a good time to kind of maybe think about that. Cause what if we have another, another heavy rain year? And then what if we have another one? And what if it just gets heavier and heavier? Because I know we like to all be pessimistic and say, it's never, the rain's gone. It's like, well, maybe this is a sign it's coming back. Like, how do we know? The weatherman doesn't know from today to tomorrow, most of the time. So the reality is anything could kind of happen. Um, but that being said, I'm not trying to, you know, stand on my little pedestal here and talk about biochar too much but it seems like a good investment maybe and it seems like someone else should come on the podcast soon and talk about it yeah no it's it's definitely something to think about because that's that's what i was gonna say it was uh some of the growers i've heard from is they've been like you said fertigating as much as they can because the soil they feel like even though the soil tests and everything come back okay they may not be available nutrients in the soil. It may have put right. the water may have leached all the available nutrients out, and then you just have unavailable nutrients there. Right. So they've been irrigating and fertigating and spraying and just little doses here and there, just to kind of put band aids on it because they know that you can't put. There's no miracle cure all to fix it. Right. All you can do is get your test back, look at the tree, make an assessment, talk to a PCA, and kind of just feed it little bits at a time just to get it through this year and then this fall is whenever a lot of guys are talking about doing major major soil amendments right ah the pca shout out hopefully i'll have a pca coming on pretty soon um what about leggy growth like on these trees uh with excess rain i don't know especially on annuals i feel like you'll often get like a real leggy when i say that term i mean like a long uh, length between the nodes yeah the, the internodes are a little stretched a little longer yeah. to where they almost grew too fast to not quite uphold their weight as easily and as um normally as they would where they'd build kind of slow so it can actually hold its weight as it grows instead they grew really fast and almost kind of like fall down easier i feel like i've seen that a little bit driving by orchards even um oh yeah yeah oh yeah for sure you gotta imagine whenever you know, our air is how much percent nitrogen? 70-something percent nitrogen or something Yeah, something crazy. like that, yeah. So you got to imagine all that water is falling through the air. It's pulling all that nitrogen in as it's falling through there. You have nitrogen-rich water hitting the soil. <clears throat> and then that nitrogen, that nitrogen water gets pulled through the soil and all these crazy amounts. And as it's leaching out everything else below, it's leaving the nitrogen in its path. Dude, so it's kind of beautiful. Of it's kind of beautiful, though. Like, oh my gosh, when you said it yeah. like that, it was like, oh wow, it's so yeah, beautiful. Yeah, well, you just—it's just imagine a wave of a wave of N coming down, hitting the ground, and then the N that was huge in the air just starts to turn into a bunch of little ends and separate out, and then all your P's and K's are getting pushed even lower. Especially as the heat comes. But you know what yes. could have maybe benefited this would be biochar, just because it yeah. would be a form of carbon to kind of slow those nitrogen breakdowns. 
in a, exactly. in the case of these events, you know. I'm not trying to preach, folks. I swear. I just I'm interested. I'm I'm sold on the idea. I don't need convincing. Biochar could change the game. But I'm gonna have someone else coming on soon to discuss it. I'm pretty sure. He's just busy, folks, so pay attention. But um we're talking about water, bro. We're talking about all this excess water and how it affected the plants and stuff. But it's also affected the canals and the yes. reservoirs and the lakes and the rivers and streams. And it's pretty a beautiful thing to watch, um, especially just driving around. Most places you see canals, they're full to the top, bro. Like, you know, like you're driving, you're like, yo, yo, they're getting water. But it's almost like I'm not saying it's too much water. I'm just saying that this abundance of water ends up somewhere. And it doesn't just stay there. When you see running water, it's going somewhere. It's literally traveling in real space and time. And uh, the King's River, all hail the King's River, has finally eventually made its way back to Tulare Lake, which has been known as the Phantom Lake. They've also called it the, what are they, I wrote it down, the Lake That Will Not Die or California's <sighs> Zombie Lake. Because this oh, lake like is now reappearing they use that word reappearing you know it came out of nowhere but there's a lot of history involved with Tulare Lake and it's some wild history and especially given that these rivers just naturally would end up there and it would create this thing and, and we could go back prehistoric or whatever like a long time ago when like the oceans receded they say and water sometimes would flood and it made all this geology that we see over time but we're just talking a couple hundred years ago um not even a couple hundred years ago, it wasn't even 200 years ago, this was a lake. And it was the biggest lake, the west of the Mississippi. It was the biggest freshwater lake this side of the Mississippi. And it was, in fact, like the second largest lake in all the United States. And Really? Yeah. And now oh it doesn't – it exists now in 2023, right now as we talk about yeah. this. But even a year ago, it wasn't, it wasn't there, you know. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's only – had its reappearance since uh, the late 1800s four or five times in the last oh, hundred wow. years. So okay. it, it has done this before. This is not new. It's not like, oh, this where'd that lake go? It just disappeared. Like people, yeah. like the news spins it kind of almost, and then it just reappeared. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. There's some serious water changes in the hydrology here that are changing that. And I've had Louis Long shout out on the podcast, on this podcast, episode number five, talk about the hydrologic cycle, talk about all this stuff. And we even talked about the Kings River to Larry Lake a little bit from a professional standpoint. And, uh, I really appreciate that guy. That guy really broke it down well. So please go listen to that episode after this one, number five. And uh, we were talking about how the hydrology has changed given that we like to channel water where we want it to go. And yes. that need base was based solely on agriculture at the beginning, but then became to support the population that we now have in the state of California, along with agriculture, both because we need the agriculture to feed the population and the population also needs water to do all its odds and ends. So down where Tulare Lake is over there, is that, I'm not super familiar with where it is now, being that I've been, I'm living up here now. Um, is this in the similar area to where like, what, five, uh, five, six, seven years ago, Corcoran was having the huge sinkholes? Yeah, dude, it's literally like, like Corcoran like, is like the, is part of where Tulare Lake would uh, originally would, that would all be underwater. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> there, I mean, there's got to be some sort of connection between those sinkholes and the underground aquifers that are no longer filled up and <clears throat> this coming back now that we have an excess water year and all that. I'm sure that all that stuff has to be connected. 
Dude, it could be. I'm not the one to ask, but I, I, I have a hunch that I think there's a lot of connections because, I mean, you talk about geological time frames of water creating the landscape in which we live in. And mm-hmm. you can see places that are like, why is all this river rock right here? Way over here. The river's not right here. It used to be. It used to yeah. be, bro. It would meander across the land, create the landscape. And some yeah. years would be way more than others, right? We're talking like Noah's Ark type of floods, bro. I don't know. To use, to use yeah. a good reference, we're talking floods, bro, or like ice melting or something on a geological time frame to create where we are now. But yeah. in the last couple hundred years, we've decided to take things into our own hands. And I don't necessarily yeah. think it's it's not a, a bad thing, right? Like, we're not, no one's trying to make it that conversation other than the politicians and the people that are really after certain rights and whatnot. But the, the reality of what we're talking about here is there is so much water and precipitation and snow that is now melted and gone downstream. And all these canals and all these uh, whatever yeah. ways of transporting water are, have been fed and they're being fed well. The reality, though, is there's this lake that now fills up because it all these a lot of these waterways would end up there and it's inevitable. But instead, the idea was we're going to drain it back in the day like it was like white man. I'm going to say it. All right. White man, classic white man coming through and trying to take over some shit and accidentally or intentionally get some of these Native Americans sick, whatever, and move them out because that is a fact. That's a historical fact. But along with that process was like, how else can we do this? Like, we don't need just a lake. The lake's cool. We can get hella ducks and and, and fowl and all this stuff. But like, what else could we do? You know, well, we could drain part of it. The land's very fertile here. And I forget who it was, but I was just researching earlier. They were like, I think it was Cartmill, Dr. Cartmill. He was, uh, he's like OG. Like he, there's like hella streets named after him in Tulare County and stuff. Yeah. And uh, he he was the guy that was like, this was a good idea. Like, I, I, I think that farming some of this land is a better idea than having a lake. And the lake uh, doesn't serve its purpose here basically anymore or some shit like that. And it's like, oh, OK. OK, that's a bold ass <laughs> statement. <clears throat> but then it's going to come back sometimes because the inevitability of these waterways that you can't completely redirect into into wherever necessarily you want. And. Uh, the the waters that still come into this could flood it. And, and, and it does flood, I guess, when there's an excess amount of water and there's some years where it's completely dry. But yeah. essentially, people decided to start farming it and growing hella wheat and hella stuff, right? And it's cool. Yeah. But it's also like, well, the inevitability is maybe we shouldn't plant and build too many things right here because maybe water's going to come again. Well, now it's there again. <clears throat> It flooded. <clears throat> so basically, Tulare Lake was the biggest great water lake west of the Mississippi in the United States from the Paleolithic period to the late 1800s. I don't even know when the Paleolithic period was, but it was a long dang time ago until yeah. the 1800s, bro. So then we decide to divert things in all our various ways. Some of them become uh, federal state uh, operations. Some of them remain local operations, but it all has to do with someone having a say. And, we're, and deciding yeah. where that water goes. And rightfully so. If we need to grow crops, we need water to grow those crops. Let's do something about uh-huh. it. But there is a point where the scales may tip. And when this situation may be one of them. But <clears throat> I'm sure once it dries, people are going to try to farm it again. And it's going to be fertile land. Oh, sure. um, but it probably will flood again. And I did a little recap yeah. history <clears throat> that it's only reappeared four to five times, arguably five times, since 1899 when they began farming it. And decided we're going to drain it. We're going to we're going to pump it off into the San Joaquin, which is going to go out to the ocean, which is also hilarious because a lot of farmers are like, "You're sending that water out to the ocean," but it's like, "Yeah, but we pump it into the San Joaquin, which goes out to the ocean." Like, 
I don't know. I'm not trying to like stir up shit in the listener. I just think it's hilarious. This is cool history right here. And it has to do with the Central Valley, which creates billions of dollars. I don't know, billions of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue annually in in agricultural, uh, the agricultural sector, period. You know, but in 1969, that lake reappeared for a year or two and then and then eventually uh, drained. Normally, it was only like 50 feet deep back in the day. But it was super wide. It was like, like some crazy amount of miles wide, right? Yeah. But it was it was only like fifty feet deep. So it, it's not necessarily deeper than like Lake Tahoe or any of these other lakes. But yeah. it was wider in like surface area. Volume wise, it's huge. Yeah. yeah. Then in nineteen eighty three, yeah. this is only fourteen years later, right? And uh-huh. it and it it filled up again, and that's oh, yeah. the Phantom Lake, you know. Oh, nineteen ninety seven. Now, this is another 14 years exactly later that it does this, which I thought was weird because I'm doing the math. I'm like, okay, well, it it went like 30 to 50 years or something without doing that successfully. But then 14 years, 14 years, and then arguably in 2017, it may have came back, but it wasn't full on. They were pumping a lot of it into the San Joaquin to go further down, which is intercepted before it goes out to the ocean. Like everyone says, it's not like it all just goes out to the ocean. There's other ways that it gets diverted for other needs before it gets there. All right. But that's the natural way the arteries flow. Arteries of blood flow back to the heart, maybe, you know, and the ocean, you could say, is some way of uh, some metaphor of a heart. It has to go back to the way that it all works. It's a hydrologic cycle. But anyways, and then in 2023, here we are. Lakes full, lakes looking beautiful. I have yet to go, which is foolish as fuck of me for not having gone before. We even talked about this on this episode, but I will go and we're going to go check it out. I've seen drone footage and stuff. That lake, you can't even like see across it. Like it's crazy. Really? The lake would lake would reach all the way to Kettleman City back in the day, bro. Like that's pretty much what Kettleman City was was like the edge of like the lake bottom, and it would go over those little hills and in throughout those hills, which makes sense I mean, when you drive by it. You're like, oh my gosh, this looks like water formed this at some time. Yeah, yeah. long ass time ago it did. <laughs> it's crazy. That's crazy to think about because that's what 115, 120 miles from Tulare down to Kettleman City. Yeah, dude. Like that's that's a huge expanse of land. I don't I don't know if the listeners <clears throat> realize how far that is because California is huge, huge. We talk about instead of saying oh we drove ten miles, it's like oh no that's a twenty minute drive because right. our state is right. so huge. We have to quantify things with times, not distances. Right. Right. So I mean, if <laughs> I don't know how to quantify that to anything else, but I mean, I know that whenever we have foreigners from France come in, they talk about how California is about the same size as France, an entire country. Yeah. I always felt like California is its own country. That's why we're doing the Cali Ag podcast, folks. We're out here in the country of California. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think think California GDP right now is like almost $4 trillion on its own. Yeah. Just California as a state has an almost $4 trillion economy. And a lot of that is agriculture and then ports on the coast. Yeah. How insane is that? And then the tech industry. And that's, yeah, that's, that's it. Huge. That's all. No, I mean, that's, I mean, that's honestly what it is. You know, we You're have dominant. agriculture and we have, um, industry and that's it. Agriculture, industry, and technology. Yeah. Those are the three things we can provide. Yeah. But it's just, it's just crazy to think. I didn't know that Tulare Lake was that huge. I, I knew that it wasn't very deep. I knew it was a fairly shallow lake. I didn't know that it, you know, expanded further than the eye can see. I didn't know that it was like that. I mean, maybe not farther than the eye can see, but, like, I don't know. When I look at a drone shot, like, on Instagram of Tulare Lake, it's like, what yeah. the heck, bro? Like, I can't see where it ends. 
I literally don't. I can't see where like the next thing where there's land. Like I just see water. Like what the heck? That's huge. You know, they used That's to boat nice. on it. Like the Yokuts would literally boat on it in their canoes and like hunt on it. And there were beaver all up and down the rivers and all this stuff. Wow. Dude. Grizzly Adams hunted beavers in the on the King's River, bro, at uh, Tulare Lake in at the lake. Like literally, like it's documented. This guy Grizzly Adams used to hunt there back in the Disney. Wow. That's nuts. Imagine if we didn't have all the man-made infrastructure to redirect all that water, what it would be like. Yeah. Like, and, indefinitely. And I'm, you know and I mean? I'm, even in years of drought. 100%. Like, I'm not even, like, suggesting that we do that. It's just, it's interesting to notice what the earth, whatever the earth, whatever you want to say about, like, the water and its natural process, what it wants to do, and then what we as humans can do and manipulate it. It's beautiful, yeah. but it has its downsides. It has its plus sides. I think one plus side to argue maybe is that that whole area that was farmland is now getting like doused with so much water. It's going to replenish some of the groundwater yep. in the Tulare Basin, which is like a, like the big big picture of of hydrology and watersheds and shit. And I feel like that basin filling up is great, but also even just the salts and whatever from people farming it for the last hundred years have now implemented and caused on the soil. Now, theoretically, we'll get knocked down and out. I mean, theoretically. So once that ground is uh, available to farm again, it probably will be great ground to grow in. It just depends on what we're growing and how long we're planning on doing it before we get flooded out again or something, you know, because who knows? Like I said, I would love to see another year where we get that kind of rain, but can we handle it? You know, we're almost banking on there being a drought every year. That's what we've invested in, you know. The California has become an industry of learning how to farm a desert. We made it a desert and we decided, you know what, whatever little water we get, we're going to redirect it and we're going to learn to grow in a desert. And it's crazy that that's what we decided to do. We came here. It was nice and fertile. We turned it into a desert and then reestablished it. Yeah. Insane to think about. And it's, but it, even with all the infrastructure that was put in, Mother Nature still came in this year and said, you guys, man, you think you got this handled? Check this out. And look, look what happened. <laughs> yeah. Mother Nature took back over what was hers. It's just crazy to sit and look at that sort of stuff and really try to sit and think about it. But well, know. within reason, too, because some people will be like, yeah. well, what about the dams? And, and, and especially on the King's River, like I work at the Wake House and we're right there on the King's River, baby. And it's like the water's up again. It's almost like coming over the ridge again. And it already flooded once. Um, but that was oh. because they had to let a lot of water out of the dam ahead of time to make room for the incoming snow melt. Well, now the snow's melting like crazy and they have to continuously let a lot of water out to make sure that the dam doesn't overflow because that's not an option. Yeah. And, 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 and to do that requires a lot of like science, bro, like a lot of math, a lot of, a lot of, uh, engineering, which is why it's controlled by the army Corps of engineers and, and not every dam is right. But there are, I did some research. There are over 1400 dams in the state of California and 1300 reservoirs. Wow. I did not know that. Instead of thinking like, Oh, you know, like that we need more dams like a lot of people say that and i think it's because of the rhetoric that they see driving down the 99 there's lots of signs and they're effective in people's opinion especially on topics they don't understand or or even decide to delve into i'm not even trying to be like uh belittling or anything i'm just saying like people like just see what they see and they're like oh must mean something it must be the truth but that's not always the case so it's important to think about it for yourself and to look into these things obviously like everyone says do your own research blah 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 but seriously Look into this kind of stuff. It's beautiful. It's historic. But when you talk about they're needing more dams, I mean, I'm not arguing against dams. I'm just saying we got a lot of dams, dude. 1,400 dams. That's a lot of dams. That means there's like a dam on every stream and river. 
at least once. Yeah. You know, and, and, and unless you have a reservoir, you want to create another reservoir. Okay, we could do that too, I guess. But it has to be logical and it has to make yes. sense. And it can't now dry up everything else downstream for us to maintain something further upstream because it has to flow at the end of the day. That's the point of us doing what we do. You know, with water, yeah. the way we have learned how to manipulate it to our advantage is the only way, really, to keep doing what California does in agriculture and the scheme of it all. You know, well, of course, it, it it all it all works together and it's all interconnected at some point. You know, I mean, I mean, like you said, the engineers who study snowpack up in the Sierras directly affects the dude buying a tomato in San Francisco. You know what I mean? It's it's all connected. Yeah, it's, it's all there. You know, yeah, I mean, but like, up there. there's a, there's suggested like uh, there's like the suge- there's more suggested uh, dam implementations and reservoirs that people want to pass. Like, it's obviously a part of the water rights thing. It's a part of how water's moved and allocated and stuff. Everyone wants to divide it even further. And I'm not arguing against that necessarily. I'm saying though that it's interesting because one example, which is very close to where I live here in Reedley, California, is just over here in Aubury. There's some place they want to call it Temperate Temperance Flats Reservoir. It's not a reservoir yet, or a dam yet, but the plan is to do that, and it'd cost a couple, I think, a couple billion dollars. Either that or it's trillion. I don't really remember, but it's it's a lot. Okay. And it's a couple, probably a couple billion, you know, like I throw it around like it's nothing, but to, to, to provide that and to create that and create a dam and operate it and, and invest in it and all this kind of stuff and, 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 and make it make sense somehow in the hydrology. But Tulare Lake would hold twice that amount of water on its own. Yeah. See, that, that was the next question was what was the, um, what was the suspected or proposed capacity of the temperance flat reservoir i don't really remember okay because i know that pine flat up up at the top of the kings is a million acre feet right is capacity um so i mean and i don't i don't know if people realize how how much that is that's taking one acre of land and putting a million feet of water on top of it that's an insane amount of water you know what i mean that's just that's a ridiculous amount of water and it's it's crazy that that dam can hold all that back and then they're proposing to do more but but like you're saying who would that service okay so i found out the answer to this the temperance flat uh temperance flat uh what's it called temperance flat dam would be it would have a total capacity of about two I don't know, one one million two hundred and sixty thousand acre feet. So it'd be like, you know bigger than Pine Flat. Yeah, like a quarter a quarter bigger than Pine Flat. Which is cool. Pine Flat's a huge body of water for it's sure. Huge. It's but huge. it's just interesting yeah. that it, it we to, to we'd have to invest in a new infrastructure, which I'm not saying not to do and I'm not saying to do, obviously. I'm just saying that we would have to build a whole new infrastructure and spend billions, if not trillions of dollars on it. <clears throat> and yes. then it it be something that we can operate in and it may be beneficial, but we could also just decide, Hey, why don't we just utilize Tulare Lake somehow? And exactly. it would be like way less of a cost. Cause it already just kind of ends up there anyways. It could, you know, yeah. I don't know just these weird ideas that are like, um, up in the air that need to be discussed in California agriculture. And people are discussing them in front of us and more so af- away from us because yeah. It has to be like that, folks. Everyone wants a piece of the pie. And some people definitely should be fighting for that. But sometimes it ends up in the weirdest hands. And, 
it could go that way one day where the water no longer gets directed where it needs to go to just have the agriculture we have. But for now, we still have it. It's beautiful. I love it. I think it's amazing. I wanted to talk about it because I want to talk about the history. I geek out on stuff like this. I've learned so much this year um, about the hydrologic cycle, about the Kings River, about Tulare Lake coming back. And I had to bring it up. And I knew Anthony was the perfect person to talk to about it, my Cali Ag podcast correspondent. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing it up, too, because it's something that I, I have been interested in, but I just haven't had the time or the energy to research it. So I learned a lot today. Thank you. Absolutely, bro. So we're going to have you back on pretty soon. We'll talk about other stuff as the season wraps up with the stone mm-hmm. fruit vibes, and we'll definitely talk about it, especially once my, uh, my uh, Mia Snow peaches come Correct. off. You know, yeah. we'll definitely, I'll use that as a reference point kind of when we'll probably have you back on and we'll discuss what's going down, bro. Yeah. You know what? That's probably a good time because around that time of year, we the bud formation is starting. So we can kind of get an idea as to what <clears throat> fruit crops could possibly look like for next year by <clears throat> judging the amount of vegetative versus fruit buds on the trees. Nice. So, so yeah, that's definitely something to look forward to. Absolutely. That's, that's the next step in it is getting everything ready for next year. Absolutely, bro, because we got to keep this Cali ag going on its track, you know, and we appreciate you, Anthony Garcia, out at Zager's Genetics, doing his thing, bringing us amazing fruit, and having a little time on the side to talk to us on this beautiful podcast. We're very grateful for you, Anthony. Seriously, bro, I'm very grateful for for you. Grateful, I should say that on this podcast. (laughs) Actually, it's kind of cool. Got to have a viticulturalist on next, too. But uh, we appreciate you. I appreciate you. This is a blast. Thank you for talking to us and enlightening us on what's been going on, what's happening, listening to me talk about a bunch of stuff. I appreciate it. No, dude, thank you so much for having me on and giving me the voice that I, you know, I'm very, I'm very proud to have because it's what I do is something very unique, you know, and thank you for allowing me to be on here and have a voice and thank you for being interested in it and want to bring it to the masses because that's, that's a really important thing for California agriculture is just, it's not just a piece of fruit or some vegetables sitting in the store. It came from somewhere and it all starts somewhere. Absolutely. So folks tell your friends and tell a farmer about the Cali ag podcast. This podcast was created by the Symbiosis Now Network and can be found on Instagram for clips, highlights, videos, blah, blah, blah at symbiosis.now.network. And you can listen to the Symbiosis Now podcast as well as the Cali Ag podcast on Spotify, Apple, and all the platforms. Listener, be sure to tell your friends about the Symbiosis Now Network.